Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode of America Adapts. Yes, as promised, we have author and professor Elizabeth Rush back on. Elizabeth was on earlier this year talking about writing on the subject of climate change. We alluded to her book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore, in that episode, but since then, it has come out and she has had a gangbuster six months. We talk about the book, the book tour, and how climate change relates to the Me Too movement. Yes, we go there, and I think you'll be inspired by how Elizabeth makes the links to this important movement. Also, in a short piece at the end, I interview Kate Bishop-Williams about podcasts in the classroom. Kate has been leading a small team developing discussion guides on how to use America Adapts more broadly in educational settings. Yay! This also has applications for other podcasts. See the show notes for the links to the podcast in the class resource. Stick around for that short but important conversation. Some podcast news. I was just a guest on the awesome sustainability podcast, A Sustainable Mind, hosted by the amazing Marjorie Alexander. Marjorie and I dig into how adaptation and sustainability are two different fields and how they can learn from each other. Check it out. Link is in the show notes. Check out her podcast. Okay, I'm introducing a new section here. Letters from Adapters. I get letters all the time, some really excellent stuff, and I wanted to start sharing some of these. I think everyone could learn a thing or two. Okay, I'm going to share two of them right now. Hi, Doug. Just want to let you know that I'm closely following your podcast from India. I spent the last school year in the U.S. as a Fulbright scholar studying about climate change education K-12. through I thoroughly enjoy the podcast learning something new each time, especially like the ones with Sean Martin, Mark Morano, Catherine Hayhoe, the Cli-Fi one, to name just a few. I should tell you that the podcast is influencing me. I think I'm slowly shifting my position from a strong mitigation advocate to a more mitigation adaptation advocate, or rather an adaptation-based mitigation advocate. Thanks for hosting America Daps. Chong, Dr. Chong Shimray, who's an associate professor at the Department of Education and Science and Mathematics in New Delhi, India. Wow, India, that's so awesome. Thank you so much for writing, Chong. What an honor to hear from you. And I'm very happy that the podcast has been a resource for you. Okay, my next letter is from Anita Van Vreda. Hi, Doug. As an America Adapt supporter, I want you to have credibility in the disaster management space. Uh-oh, I don't think I like where this is going. Okay, in addition to banning natural disaster from your lexicon, please stop using the term climate refugee incorrectly. And when your guests use the term incorrectly, please politely correct them. People who move from one end of Louisiana to the other or from Louisiana to Texas are not climate refugees. They are climate IDPs, or internally displaced people. They are only a climate refugee if they cross a national border. Sorry, I know climate refugee sounds good, but it is incorrect usage of the term. And that's what you get for asking a disaster expert to join your advisory group. Cheers, Anita. Yes, thanks, Anita, for humiliating me in front of all my listeners. Much appreciated. Seriously, this is great. We all have much to learn, and language is important. I'm sure I'll screw up again, but please, adapters, keep me on my toes. Thank you, Anita, for clarifying that. Okay, if you have some thoughts, email me, and I'll try to get it on the show. Okay, some quick shout-outs. Thanks to Amber Cottle for reaching out. Thanks, Donald Wright, for the kind words. 
Thanks to the University of Arizona for inviting me to their regional adaptation workshop. Alexandra, great talking with you, and I hope you pursue that podcast. Okay, future episodes. The next episode coming out is part two of the flooding series I'm doing with World Wildlife Fund. I'm also in the final stages of another WWF episode with Sean Martin on how to mainstream adaptation with guests from literally around the world. And then, but this will actually be a little while, but I just confirmed I'll be covering the Historic Preservation Conference in St. Augustine, Florida next spring. University of Florida is bringing me in and I'm really looking forward to covering their theme, keeping history above water. St. Augustine is a beautiful city. Looking forward to that. And yes, I am a Florida Gator. I love the Gators. So it's awesome that they're bringing me over. Okay, adapters, this is the part you can't skip. No hitting that fast forward 30 second button, okay? America Adapts is a charitable organization. I'm a 501c3 and I need your support. I know you longtime listeners are always thinking about donating. Now is your time. Go to americaadapts.wedid.it. It's as simple as that. This podcast will only continue through your support. And thanks to all my existing supporters. You guys rock. That donate page is in the show notes. Also, if you are interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote addresses. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. And if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, I'm doing some podcast consulting. You can contact me via the website americadaps.org. Okay, now let's join in with Elizabeth Rush. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to have back on author and visiting lecturer in English at Brown University, Professor Elizabeth Rush. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. It is a thrill to have you back on. I just want to catch some people up. There's probably people that did not listen to your original episode. And so, uh, folks, uh, Elizabeth was on, and it was back in January, I think. That was the first time you were on the, the podcast. And you came on and you talked about creative nonfiction writing and climate change. But then since that podcast came out, a lot has happened to you. That's true. So my book... <laughs> I should probably tee you off a little bit. <laughs> that's fine. No, that's perfect. I... In June, I published a book called Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore, which really took me five years to write and is an on the ground um, investigation of different coastal communities around the country and how they're coming to terms with sea level rise. I think of it also as sort of a meditation on how we learn to let go of the places that we love and the things that have defined us, because a lot of the coastal communities that I write about are, you know, literally watching the ground where they've made their lives disappear under higher tides and stronger storms. And with that publication, I also went on a nationwide book tour and have been, you know, writing a handful of op-eds and publishing excerpts. And it's just been, for me, like a small sort of media frenzy, (laughs) but uh, nothing to complain about. It's been fun, exhilarating. As I was listening to the episode you were on in January, just to, to catch up on things, you sort of just allude to the book in it. And I, I mean, I don't know if you thought of it really, I thought it was a big deal, the critical reception and, and all the things that you got to do for it. And yeah, you <laughs> kind of briefly mentioned what you were doing with the book. And so that's I, having you back on to talk about that book. And I want to talk about the book tour and just, you know, poke your brain about maybe how you've changed since the book has come out. Cause I, I think you've been in the thick of, of a lot of interesting things in response to, I guess, the demands of the book. Yeah, you know, what I find really fascinating 
is as a writer who covers climate change, I tend to pay a lot of attention to news media coverage of climate change. And it's just been really fun to maybe fun is the wrong wrong adjective, but it's been fascinating to watch this book go make its way out into the world. And one of the things that people are really responding to with it is the fact that every chapter, I should say that it's it's a book that's written from eight coastal communities around the country, from Louisiana to Miami, Staten Island in New York to the San Francisco Bay Area. Each of the chapters opens with the words of someone who's living on the front lines of climate change, who's living on the front lines of sea level rise, talking about the experiences that really woke them up to the reality of this problem and also the things that they're doing sort of on a personal, on a metaphysical, on a financial level to rise to the challenge of rising seas. And I think of each of those as like a testimony that sort of starts off each chapter. It's a moment of bearing witness. And that's something that people have really responded to um, with this book that they felt it was important for them to hear directly from those impacted by climate change. And I think this summer also seems to me New York, the New York Times ran a headline that said something like, this is the year that climate change became real. And I think that you know, as I've watched Rising make its way out into the world, I've also watched some of the ways that we write about and talk about climate change, I think, are starting to shift. And we're starting to focus on climate change, not as a future problem, but as a problem that's happening right now. And I think climate communicators are understanding that hearing from those impacted by climate change is a really profoundly powerful communication tool. So that's sort of it's amazing to me how rapidly public discourse can change and and evolve. And that, to me, feels like something that I've been watching happen over the past couple months, for sure. You know, it's actually a bit of a challenge to talk about a book without giving too much away. But I think people would be interested in, and obviously, what would attract them to actually wanting to read the book. And I read the book, of course, and I, I love the book and this notion of literary nonfiction I thought was interesting, but I, I thought maybe we could just uh, dig in a little bit more into those themes that you mentioned, because it's really, as you probably have been recruited to be more into this sort of climate change discourse, it's been so wonky, it's been so technical, and, and you're bringing, I, I think, some much needed literary approaches to it. And one of the things that you talk about is the the ability of to, to let go and I, you know, people have having to let go of where they live. And I'm just curious, did, did you go into writing the book wanting to explore that subject or that, did that come out when you were actually talking with these people? You know, my first reporting trip in the U S around sea level rise and erosion and displacement was in Louisiana. And I definitely went down there with an idea that, you know, when it no longer makes sense to live where you live, you would leave. You know, if your house floods three times in three years, you pack up your things and you go or you sell your house and you relocate inland, you know, five, 10 miles, whatever it would take. And very quickly in Louisiana, I started to realize that the choice about whether to stay or go 
is a deeply personal one and it's not always rational and every individual sort of has to arrive at it in their own time and in their own way. What I do think that we can do and what's really important to think about right now is to empower people who are vulnerable and living along the coast with as many options as possible to help them weather sort of the changes that are already taking place in their lives. So for instance, a lot of people don't know that um, if you live in an area that has severe repetitive floods, you can apply as a community to be part of the hazard mitigation grant program, which could in some cases provide funding for the entire community to sell their homes, um, to have the land where their homes stood be returned to nature to act as buffers in the storms to come. So as much as I think it's a deeply personal decision, and that's something that I only really learned by talking to people, I also realize that it's our government's job to um, empower people living on the front lines of climate change with multiple options so that they can choose how they want to live, how they want to continue to be themselves, even though the places that have often made them and shaped them are changing. You mentioned New Orleans, and I actually just went to New Orleans just last week. I was invited to join this Freedom to Breathe tour, and I would have loved to have you there just to get your thoughts. I went to this town hall meeting, and it was the theme was basically climate change impacts and sort of resilient communities for women and gay, lesbian, transgender community. And so the entire town hall was just around those issues. And it, quite honestly, it was, it was all new material to me. And I I hadn't been in, to New Orleans in like 30 years. It's been f- forever. And so I only got to spend three or four days there. But I'm just curious, when you went there, I, the Katrina issue was everywhere. I mean, it's been like 11, 12 years now. But so much of people's identity is still wrapped up in Katrina. And I I understand why to a certain extent, but at the same time, I'm not quite sure, is it healthy? Mm. I don't know. I didn't spend enough time there, but uh, I don't know. Did you sense that when you were traveling around the area? So I should say that the community that I wrote about in Louisiana is like an hour and a half sort of south of New Orleans, which is to say that I didn't spend a ton of time in New Orleans. And the community that I wrote about has was hit by Katrina, but has also been hit by storms since then. My feeling with Katrina is that it profoundly reshaped in particular some of the areas with the longest history of black homeownership in New Orleans. So one thing that has stood out to me as I've been researching sea level rise is a poster that I saw in the lower ninth ward, which is an area with high historic high black homeownership Um, And it's a poster that was like tacked onto a telephone pole and said something like, stop calling us resilient, because every time you call us resilient, it means that you can do something else to us. We are not resilient. And that poster really stood out to me in part because, you know, resilient of resilience is one of our climate change words that we use a lot. And I think it really means different things in different places. And so if you look at a place like the Lower Ninth Ward, they, after Katrina, I think the statistic is something like only 38% of residents were able to return. And that's in part because if they applied for 
uh, recovery funding, the amount that they got was in relationship to the perceived value of their home. And because home values had been long suppressed in the lower ninth ward because of redlining and other discriminatory banking practices, oftentimes folks in recovery would not even get enough money to rebuild their home because their home wasn't perceived to have a high enough value. And that sort of, you know, you start to see the history of like racist banking practices and deeply segregated cities and city development in that statistic. So for a lot of those folks, I mean, what's crazy is that many folks who are hit by Katrina, who couldn't afford to return to New Orleans, ended up in Houston and then got hit by Harvey. So I think it's not surprising to me that Katrina still shapes the way people think about their relationship to New Orleans, because my feeling is that it really profoundly changed the social structure of the city. And I think that might have been definitely was even more impactful amongst lower income communities. That being said, I haven't spent, you know, I don't know the city as intimately as I know some of the other places that I write about in Rising. Yeah, that quote you just mentioned about resilience, one of the the speakers at the uh, town hall said the same thing. I guess she got the same quote. It's been probably circulating. And I'm still trying to unpackage that. I thought it was a fascinating quote. I'm just like, okay, this is something I don't have to worry about. And th- there's a bigger story here. And and I want to just get, get back to the idea of identity for Katrina. And of course, I get it, why it, it's such an important thing. It still defines a lot of what people are going through right now. But I guess where I sort of look at it, too, is that this was something in the past and people are responding to something in the past. And, you know, I guess with climate change, I'm sort of thinking, what what's the next Katrina? Mm. Does that redefine their character again? And I really hope people aren't kind of looking to the past too much because you know, it could easily come again. Yeah. And I, I mean, the crazy thing with climate change is like, yes, Katrina was, I guess, 12 years ago now. But since then, we've had Harvey and we've had Sandy. You know, each of these storms is sort of supercharged by warmer water in the Atlantic. It's they tend to dump a lot more rainfall than we're used to. We've got higher seas, so, you know, higher tides and higher storm surges. And at the same time, we also have the National Flood Insurance Program, which may not directly promote coastal development, but certainly supports and subsidizes our coastal communities. And all of these things together mean that we are going to continue to confront these problems over and over again. And, you know, with increasing frequency and likely with sort of increasing destructiveness in the years to come. So I totally agree that we shouldn't just look at Katrina, but I think we can or just look at the past. But in some ways, the storms that we had 50 years ago don't necessarily tell us a lot about the storms that we're going to have in the next 10 years. But these storms, these super storms like Maria, Katrina, Sandy, Harvey, I think they can shed a light on uh, the storms that will be certainly in the next decade or two. Okay. So again, themes in your book and this one I had to reread because I, I was, I felt like I was just being, <laughs> I, had, I was going to misinterpret it. <laughs> And <laughs> I think I know it's coming, but and I'm curious which one we're talking about. Oh, God. Yeah, you can, I'm so predictable. <laughs> and 
you, you talk about brief, and it's only briefly, I think it's spread out only two or three pages, is that one of uh, your students was being sexually harassed or sort of stalked, um, and I think she was doing some overseas work. And when she came back, and the sort of, I guess, your response to her, and then you kind of stepped back and were talking about the, the, the issue that, I guess, women are facing. And then what you did, and, oh, please just clear this up for me or – I confirm that I'm right, but that you weave this issue of women and the risks that they face, and then you brought in the risks of storms and flooding. And I mean, you didn't dig too much into that, but I'm just, I wonder if you could elaborate on it. I thought it was just fascinating, and I'm just, I want to make sure that I didn't totally misinterpret what you were doing there. I don't think you did. Doug is talking about a chapter called Risk, and it was hands down the hardest chapter in the book to write. And I think in part for that reason, it might be my favorite chapter. A a writing mentor of mine said, you know, if what you're writing makes you scared or makes you nervous, you're probably on the right track. And I certainly felt that throughout the entire writing of that of that chapter and sharing drafts with my colleagues. It was sort of a terrifying thing to do. So and a hard needle to thread, essentially the chapter I think of it as looking at sort of parallel vulnerabilities. So I go on a reporting trip to Pensacola, Florida, and on that trip, I am spending a lot of time working in low income communities of color. And for me, you know, my work is really about interviewing individuals who live on the front lines of climate change and often individuals whose voices are marginalized in the larger climate change conversation. And so to even contact them, it's not like you look up uh, who's the mayor of Coral Gables and then you ask their press person to get you an interview. I tend to do a lot of door knocking, going door to door, understanding which neighborhoods are of interest to me because of their sort of socioeconomic vulnerability and then lo- putting myself on the ground there. So that is as a practice for a writer and in particular for a female writer, it's a practice that makes me somewhat vulnerable. You know, I have to go into strangers' homes and, and, you know, I usually do that without knowing too much about them. And so I'm making myself vulnerable in that moment. And I, I think that in this chapter, you know, or just in general, I try to as best I can make an informed decision about whether or not I should enter into a stranger's home. And that's a decision that I make sometimes based on instinct. But I also know that my instinct is not arrived at by chance, but is sort of a cultural product. So, you know, if I have a pang of fear when I'm knocking on the door of an African-American man who lives below the poverty level, I also have to check myself and say, you know, is that fear the a cultural product, something that was made to live inside of me because of the his, history of racism in this country? Or is it something that I ought to pay attention to? So in this chapter, I'm doing a lot of door knocking and you know, there are moments where I'm afraid to enter a stranger's home. And the thing that I think is the most profoundly destabilizing to me in this chapter and in my life when I was working on this chapter is that 
you know, the people who I have never experienced a kind of sexual harassment or assault inside of the lower income communities of color that I work in. But the reality is that I experience pretty regular harassment in the workplace, often from senior colleagues who have more power than me and are often white and often sort of higher up in the food chain. And so this chapter is partly about writing about what it's like to be a female in the field as a writer, conducting field work and how we assess risk and how we assess the physical peril to our bodies. Um, and I realize in the course of writing the chapter that the things that I've been taught to fear are not actually the things that necessarily pose a threat to me. And that I, because of that, in, as I was conducting that field work, I was actually harassed by a senior colleague. And so that story runs parallel with this other story in the chapter, which is about these about folks who live in the floodplain, who I would argue don't live there by choice, but live there because often they're living in communities that were once former wetlands and wetlands tend to be as pieces of property valued at a lower rate because they tend to be flood prone. So you have often vulnerable communities living in these vulnerable landscapes. And I think, you know, they're assessment of risk is in some ways what they're doing when storms come and they have to decide whether or not they're going to evacuate. They often don't have as many options to evacuate because they don't have the money to go to a hotel. So thinking about sort of their, their vulnerable bodies and the limited set of choices they have, I think in some ways is not dissimilar to some of the challenges that women face in particular in the workplace. And so I sort of run these two stories parallel to one another and ask at the end if people who have long been considered vulnerable might start to band together and form coalitions and say, you know, this thing that we've been taught makes us weaker or makes us more vulnerable is actually a strength. And we have strength in numbers. And when we come together, we can demand a better future and a more egalitarian future. So that's sort of my hope with that chapter, but it's a complicated needle to thread. And one that I try to do with, you know, lyric storytelling. <laughs> what you just said, you beautifully threaded that needle on, you landed that nicely. You explained that perfectly. And I wanted to make sure I didn't mess up my interpretation of it. And as I was reading it, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate is that because it took you a while to, to write the book. I'm just, the whole Me Too movement probably occurred after you even wrote that, right? And I, I wonder if you might have written something a little bit different since this whole issue became so prominent. You know, great question. And you're right. I wrote, I wrote that chapter in about a year before the Me Too movement exploded. And I was in, a, a faculty writing group at, at Bates College where I was teaching at the time and I would meet with them. We would meet every two weeks and I just, I still remember coming into that writing group and everyone had read my essay and I was terrified. It was like, you know, I don't know if I am breaking 
so many of the rules that dictate and define our community by talking about this. And a lot of my female colleagues said, you know, I've experienced things like that, too. Um, and the thing that sort of threw me over the edge was when my students started to say, especially women who do field work, started to say that they experienced um, different forms of harassment. And in particular, that they had never been as part of their education. That was never part of their education, that no one told them um, that that might be possible or that that was something that would they would need to prepare for. Because it can, I think, really, when it happens to you, twist your sense of self-worth. You think you're doing good work and then you think, oh, someone's just interested me in me for romantic or physical or sexual reasons. And that really sort of devalues your self-perception. I think would I have written it differently? You know, there's there's a quote by Gia Tolentino in the chapter that made its way into the chapter after the Harvey Weinstein story broke. Um, and she wrote a piece about that for The New Yorker. So there are little bits that are in the chapter that came in later as I revised. But I don't think that I. I think that, you know, it's not a coincidence that these two things in my life sort of happened at the same moment and are happening sort of in a larger cultural moment. I'm really glad that we're having the conversations we're having. I think they're really important. Well, I just think your history with dealing with that kind of harassment just demonstrates the Me Too movement is nothing new. Fortunately, it's giving a, additional attention, but yeah, it's just, it's always been there. Absolutely. I talked to some of my, like, my female mentors and, you know, it, it is something they have faced their entire lives. And also I think that struggle for in particular to be taken seriously um, is also somehow part of all of this that, you know, women in academia, women authors get asked different questions, get treated differently in the public than male authors and academics. And, and that's been going on for quite some time. I do hope, I do feel that it's starting to shift subtly, but we still have a ways to go. Okay. So people are thinking, gosh, <laughs> adaptation in the Me Too movement. We, we went there. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it was important. And I wanted to bring it up and you, and you answered it beautifully. And I just, I, also ask that because I wanted people to just kind of to get a flavor of, of what the book is about. And it's not just about that, but it's about these stories and there's science and there, it's just this strong narrative. And I, I, I just want people to know that it, it's, you know, that it's a deep penetrating book and it, it's unusual. So I think what just explain what you did there. And, and on that note, I want to talk a little bit about the critical reception of the book because I don't want to give too much away the book. People are out there if they want to buy it. I don't want to give them reason not to buy it, but I want to just say, I think you're right. And I want to say if I were to like summarize what it's about without talking about climate change in a weird way, I would say it sort of proposes this question. Like, what if we thought of vulnerability as a kind of rallying cry? Like what happens when those of us that are vulnerable start to think of climate change also as an opportunity to transform our relationship with each other and with the land. And I feel like in some ways it tries to investigate that question in different coastal communities in the U.S. So there, that's like maybe a good way of summarizing climate change and vulnerability in the Me Too movement. 
Gosh, that sounds like a good sound clip to start this episode off. Oh, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So critical reception, and I want to talk specifically because we could go on all day about some of the things, but you had a New York Times book review, and I I read that, and of course, you must have been thrilled. New York Times, you know, that doesn't get much more high profile than that. What did you think of the review? I... I should say that like in the opening paragraph, the reviewer compares rising to the story of Noah and the flood and Gilgamesh and sort of says that rising takes its place amongst these great stories of the flood. (laughs) And I thought like, wow, that's, you know, insanely (laughs) high praise. I'm not sure it's going to last as long as Gilgamesh, but thanks. Um, I ego stroking. I was really pleased with the review. I think it, Anytime you get, you know, a full page in the New York Times book review and someone takes the time to read your work closely and write about it, it feels like an incredible gift. So, you know, absolutely no complaints there. And he focuses on sort of the the way the book is also about searching for the language to describe the lived experience of climate change. And it says, you know, maybe, maybe we don't have all the words that we need, but we, you know, we need to start to draw close to those lived experiences and think about the ways that language can help us both understand them and then, you know, help us come together politically to demand a different kind of future. So, you know, I think the review was pretty spot on. No, it it was great, and I'm sure your publisher, I think, is it Milkweed? They were probably tickled. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's like it's we all we all drank champagne that weekend. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> big bump, big bump in sales. I'm sure, although I don't even know if it works that way. But yeah, it it's just does. something to you, you can, can see. I was like, oh, there's the, like if I look at the sales, which I only did the first time. Like a week ago, everyone keeps asking me how sales are, and I'm like, I really don't know. Um, But I looked and there is a bump around the New York Times book review for sure. You also had uh, just one of those smaller blurbs. It's actually on the book. But did you know uh, Elizabeth Colbert? Is it Colbert? How do I pronounce it? I actually don't know. I I don't know if it's Colbert, Colbert or Colbert. I'm going to go with Colbert, but I don't. Yes. Okay. Um, World famous author. That's all we need to know. So I was teaching at Bates and at Bates College in Maine, which is a wonderful small liberal arts college. And every year we have something called the annual Otis lecture, which is a person, a public personality who comes to lecture about human beings and their relationship to the environment. And while I was there, she was the Otis lecturer. So I got to meet her and have lunch with her and got to know her a little bit. and. When when you write a book pretty early on in the process, your publisher will ask you, you know, who can you get to blurb the book? And I said, I could maybe get her. And I reached out and my and my publisher reached out. She had blurbed another book that they published a a year prior or two years prior. And she agreed to read it and write something. So we were really thrilled. And the, the world is very full circle. This year, I'm returning to Bates as the Otis lecturer. Which I am also oh, nice. about. Yeah. Excellent. So I want to talk a, a bit about the book tour. I, I the, just that in itself, I think is, is very interesting. And I think you sharing some stories from what happened there. And you know what? Let, 
just give me a little bear with me here is that I was hyping this event that you and I were going to do back in June for like two or three months in the podcast. Like, Oh, I'm going to do an in-person. This is the first time I've done this with the podcast. We're going to do this interview. And I never really explained what happened there. And as, as you know, um, on the day of the event, just a few hours, actually, I was riding my bike to my son's, uh, end of the school year party. And I flipped over the, my handlebars and shattered my elbow. And yeah, it was nasty. And I, this, you know, I, I killed me because I was literally like three hours from doing this event with you and I was going to meet you in person. And I, I just want you to know it was like an hour, hour and a half. And I was still kind of stunned. I was at the hospital and I'm like, you know what? I still could make this. Uh, and my elbow is just a mess. And it, the right side of my face, it, it literally was just a bloody pulp, raw wow. blood. And, and I'm like, then I'm like, no, the people don't want to see me like this. And, uh, I kind of threw in the towel, but I, I don't think I realistically, but just so listeners know, wondering, you know, you're talking about that event with Elizabeth for so long. What happened to it? And that's what happened. I was just so disappointed, and, and I hope it went well. I'm sure you just kind of shifted it around like any of your book tour events. But uh, how did that event in DC go? Well, first, Doug, I want to know how your elbow is. Have you recuperated? Oh, you know, with the I mean, I've got like seven pieces of metal oh in it, God. like really big. Yeah, it's. It was a bad break, and so I'm just doing rehab, and I've got a lot of flexibility back. I don't know if I'll ever be able to straighten out my arm. It's really just quite, you know, a big deal. But I'm just going to the gym, working it <laughs> out, and uh, I think it's like they say it takes about two months to heal, and I'm, I'm a, about that mark. And so, uh, yeah. But thanks for asking. It's just uh, ask me again in four months. They say it could take six months to a year, and I'm just I joined this rock climbing gym, and they had this small workout part of the gym and it's an indoor rock climbing gym and what i do is just i look at all them climbing those the the wall as inspiration like doug just keep working it because i can't climb the wall yet and uh that's my way of trying to get back up to speed so you will get there i have faith in you i like and you have something to strive for which is important so i'm gonna check in in a couple months and hear whether or not you know you're doing the climbing the rock wall yeah. All right. Freak accident. Stupid. So anyway, but how was the event? Uh, the event was lovely. You know, I, there's so many things I learned on this book tour. And one is that for me, the best events are in indie bookstores where the owner's are deeply connected to the community that they serve. And they think of that bookstore as a kind of community service. So if they're able to, um, you know, contact their readers, their customers and say, Hey, we have someone coming to town that we really think you'd like. Um, and we're having this special event. You know, those tended to be the events that were the most meaningful to me. I mean, it's just wonderful to show up and have it does the room doesn't have to be packed, but if the people there are deeply interested in what you do, you know, you can have a really amazing conversation. And so in some ways I felt like the book was taking me on a journey and it was like a journey into people's living rooms into continue to have some of the difficult conversations that we need to have around climate change. I felt like I got to be sort of like a conversation facilitator because in almost every place I went to, you know, folks all around the country have firsthand experience with, with 
flooding with higher tides with stronger storms. And one thing that I learned while I was traveling up the West Coast is that many of the stories that I talk about in Rising where folks are sort of figuring out how at risk they are, how vulnerable they are, whether or not they need to sell their homes. People all over the American West have started asking themselves those questions, but in relationship to wildfires. You know, I went on the road from San Francisco all the way up to Seattle, and I was in wildfire smoke for three weeks straight between Napa and Seattle. I don't think there was a clear day in there. And in some cases, you know, I got evacuated off of a hike that I did in Napa because a fire had sprung up on the adjacent hillside. I saw Black Mountain burning in Point Reyes. I saw fires burning in Grants Pass, in which is in Oregon. I saw fires burning in Cave Junction in Oregon. You know, that followed me throughout many of the cities in the West Coast. And it was a real eye opener for me to realize that, well, the threat, the physical threats are slightly different between wildfires and, and flooding. The ways that they are starting to sort of unsettle our ideas of home and where we come from might not be that dissimilar. Okay. So how many cities did you visit? <laughs> um, I think the official total is like 29. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. And then we're doing a string of events this fall. So. The rising tour. The other cool thing about the rising tour was that I don't know if you're like me, but you've lived in different places all over the country and all over the world. You are. I mean, you just moved to Tucson. And so sometimes I feel like my friends are sort of scattered. My family is scattered. And amazingly, this summer was an opportunity because in most places I stayed with friends and family. Um, Rising the book was published by a nonprofit publishing house that is stinking awesome, Milkweed, but is also not rolling in the dough. And, and author tours are not always financially beneficial for a publishing house. So in order to sort of make this happen, I ended up staying with friends and family in almost every place I read. And that also meant that I got to catch up with friends and family all over the country. I don't think I've ever seen so many people I love during one summer. Um, so that was awesome, too. Okay, before I forget, um, the, the bookstore in D.C. that I missed out on that you were there, it's Solid State Books, and I just want to put a plug for them. They were great in the lead-up to the event that I missed, but they, you and Solid State Books sent me a book that I haven't read yet, but I just want to thank them and you for that. It was sort of like a pick-me-upper book. So, no, just a nice plug that some cool people there. Awesome. Yeah, I got there and it was their idea. They were like, let's send Doug a book for his recovery. That's awesome. And um, and I hear I think we sent you a book called The Brothers Sisters or The Sisters Brothers. And I think they're turning it into a movie. Oh, gosh, I should have got an autograph. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to I, I, this tour, though. I think this is interesting, and, I, and I'm just visualizing these moments, and that's awesome that you, you had such a way to connect with friends and family. That's, that's just another dimension to it. But when you're actually there at these events, I guess a couple things. Like, what has been your favorite moment? And then has there been any negative reaction? Was there some climate skeptic who showed up because he didn't like what you're doing, or was it just completely of friendly audiences? 
I mean, I lived in fear of the climate skeptic all summer long and they never <laughs> materialized amazingly. So it was in general, a pretty receptive audience. I think, you know, anyone who's given a presentation or gives presentations regularly knows sometimes there's someone in the audience in the question and answer period who doesn't ask a question, but really just wants to tell you that they're an expert in some related field and then talk about their expertise. So that was like annoying when that happened. But and I think it happens to women more than it happens to men. Um, but overall, like if that was the hardest part of the book tour, I came out completely unscathed. You know, that was I was fearful, but it was fine. The most positive moment. Huh. I think the moment that has stayed with me the most strongly to come to mind. One is I read in New York City at a bookstore called Greenlight Books, which is awesome. And the afternoon prior to that, I went out to visit the community leaders in Oakwood Beach, Staten Island, who, for those of you who read the book, they banded together and ask the state to purchase and demolish their flood-prone homes after Hurricane Sandy. And in three separate communities along Staten Island, the state agreed. And they purchased, demolished over 600 homes on the coast in New York City. And I was really interested in what had become of those places and those people. And I went back out to Oakwood Beach and met with the community leaders in the three communities that were successful in their bid to get bought out. And each of those people still lived within five miles. I think each of them, each of the community leaders still lived within like three miles of their original home. They were required by law to move out of the floodplain. But Staten Island has enough topographical diversity that they could move out of the floodplain and still be you know, spitting distance from their friends and family, from their butcher, from their favorite seafood restaurant, from uh, the places and the people that they depended upon. And I asked them, you know, what percentage of folks in the communities that participated in the buyout stayed in Staten Island? And they said about 80%. And that was amazing for me to hear because it helped me understand that when we talk about coastal retreat in places where there is some topographical diversity, it doesn't have to mean the fracturing of a community. It doesn't have to mean the destruction of a community. You can still have your community, albeit in a slightly different location. And I think that is really, that produced in me a pretty significant sense of hope. So that was something that was really profoundly amazing about the book tour. The other highlight for me, which is just like very personal and literary, is I gave a reading and did a Q&A, kind of like what you and I were going to do, Doug, at a bookstore in Point Reyes, California. And my oh, discussion, nice. my interviewee was Brenda Hillman, who is one of my favorite poets. And she's married to Robert Haas who was the poet laureate for, of the United States for two years. And he is also one of my favorite poets. And afterwards he gave me a big hug and just told me that I did a fabulous job. And 
And so did Brenda. And, you know, as a total literary geek, that was a major highlight. Right. Awesome. A couple more questions about the tour. And did you visit any red states on this tour? Did I visit any red states? Uh, or like red state areas. I mean, you know, you you might have gone to Omaha, but did any red states, did they, they book you there or did they stick you in the more <laughs> climate friendly areas? You know, I think I don't think that I went to any distinctly red states this fall. I'm going to go to Florida and Louisiana, which I think both maybe count as quasi red states. They probably I think Florida goes waffles back and forth but louisiana tends to go red new jersey i don't know if that counts is that a red state probably not oh it's very very blue blue? okay (laughs) (laughs) louisiana is very red but are you going to new orleans are you going to kind of go more up you know shreveport or baton rouge do you what do you know um we're still working on it and i hope to get to places outside of new orleans as well Uh, but possibly down on the bayou which tends to be pretty red And in some ways, the same is true. I think Florida waffles. But, you know, one thing that I'm thinking about for sort of round two of the rising tour is to try to do more events in more in places that don't always get sort of like the literary book tour events, you know, and I think, you know, trying to do events that connect directly with folks who are facing some of these decisions in a really meaningful way. So my, another favorite event was probably um, in Briel, New Jersey, which is just very Jersey shore close to where Bruce Springsteen is from. And folks there were, you could see the gears in their minds spinning when we started talking about retreat and, you know, wondering if this is an option that they should be pursuing. So I think step two is sort of to connect with and create, hopefully, a kind of network amongst and between some of these communities that are all facing a similar set of decisions. Well, I think you and I should try to do our in-person podcast in like a deep red state. We just set it up and just do something unique and try to get some local organizers. And I think it could be kind of fun. So I'll throw that out there. I'm down. (laughs) I don't know. Let's do it. you know, I know some listeners, one guy in particular in, in Indiana, he could help with some coordinate. Uh, yeah, I'm serious. We just, and we try to recruit maybe people that are on the fence, you know, and just it could be kind of a, a fun and, and interesting event for folks. So anyway. And I should say, I you know, writing rising, I would say that 50% of the stories are reported from Republican communities. So even though the book is about climate change, you know, climate change doesn't know the difference between a Democrat or a Republican. And one of the things that I was really purposeful in writing the book was to incorporate folks from red states or red areas and make sure that their stories were part of this larger public discussion. Because I think, you know, sometimes we only hear the stories of New York City and its amazing, you know, uh, living seawalls and really green forward-looking infrastructure solutions. But that doesn't mean that folks in red states aren't coming up with ways to address it either. They just might not be 
sort of your typical or what you would imagine is a typical response to climate change. And I think that's really fascinating and important to include those voices. Okay, so for the last part of this discussion, um, I, I want to talk about sort of like what's now and, and just get your thoughts on what this book sort of represents for you professionally. I don't know if you're seeing like a sequel, but I follow you on Twitter and I, I look at, you know, you get invited to do things now and do you feel like you're sort of like a climate persona and, and who are some of the people that you've been connected with? I, I, I think you, you've talked now with Amy Brady and I don't know if you're on an ongoing basis, but there's just these different kind of personas that are kind of coming up in the climate space. And I mean, how, how do you sort of view yourself? <laughs> it. I was having a discussion with my agent a couple days ago, and she said essentially something along the lines of what you just said, which is, you know, you've carved out a space and you're starting to be a voice that people turn to when they ask questions about vulnerability and climate change and sea level rise, as well as, you know, literature and art. And for sure, I've had, since this book came out, many more speaking opportunities and, you know, folks like Amy Brady that I've long respected. I've gotten to do interviews with them or they're writing about my book. And another one that was a big feather in my cap was that Catherine Hejo, who's considered a leading voice on how we talk about climate change with folks from religious communities. She started teaching my book in her class. She teaches, um, I think at Texas A&M University. I could have that wrong, but she teaches at a university. Tech, Texas Tech. Texas Tech. She did teaching rising and that to me just really touched me and felt like, okay, I've written a book that someone who's very aware of what it means to try to communicate about this subject across party lines, across religious lines, um, found it useful, um, useful enough to bring into the classroom is just pretty awesome. I should also say that I recently got fabulous news. I applied for and got the National Science Foundation's Antarctica Artists and Writers in Residence grant for next year. And that means that I'll actually be on a ship with 30 scientists from the U.S. and British, from the U.K. and the U.S. that are traveling to Thwaites Glacier, which is considered the cork to the West Antarctic ice sheet. And as it's deteriorating, it is starting to destabilize the entirety of the West Antarctic ice sheet behind it. The news media has nicknamed this glacier the Doomsday Glacier. And the reality is it's deteriorating, but we don't know exactly how fast. And we also don't know how fast it's deteriorated in the past. So in the past, sea levels have risen, you know, 50 feet over 300 years. And Scientists are wondering what's the relationship between that amount of sea level rise and this glacier in particular. And so they're sending uh, 30 scientists on the ship to this glacier in Antarctica. And the NSF called me a couple months ago and said, you know, there's one extra berth on the ship and we'd like you to have it. So 
I'm really honored and and sort of <laughs> excited and scared, nervous to be to be shipping out with that mission. So we'll be gone for approximately 60 days and I leave January 29th. So for sure, you know, that's kind of the sequel. And it is, I think of it as taking rising to the source. So, you know, Antarctica holds in many ways, I think is a way to will fundament the rate at which Antarctica melts will fundamentally change our coastal communities and how quickly that's going to happen. We're still trying to decipher. And this trip to the weights, I think will actually play a pretty significant scientific role in deciphering the rate at which sea levels will rise even in the next hundred years or so. So I'm deep. I'm, I'm looking forward to that trip though. Also nervous about it. Well, first off, congrats. That is so stinking awesome. I mean, what an honor. That is just so killer. Um, I'm thrilled for you, and I'm going to have you back on probably next summer or something when you can sort of digest what you went through. I think that'd be kind of a really cool conversation. I actually was trying to recruit you to do something, but you had a good excuse. You're going to be on a ship in the Antarctica, so um, that's all right. Remember the class. I was trying to get you to lecture a class, and you said you'll be on a ship, and I, it sounded like a good excuse. So. Yeah, and apparently, I mean, for a 21st century person, we are not allowed to Skype from the ship. We are not allowed to use the internet to have regular communication. So I, we can write letters, but Sorry. we can't, we can't stream movies. We can't Skype. So yeah, as much as I would love to like Skype in from the ship, that's unfortunately not going to happen. Your mind will be elsewhere, so don't worry about it. That's just really quickly. I'm going to wrap this up, but you'd mentioned Catherine Hayhoe, and I don't know. Have you ever listened to her when she came on the podcast? It was obviously a thrill for me. She talked about just being an evangelical, but we had a little Twitter kind of conversation, and she was talking about the resources, and your book came up of like what she's going to include in her class. And I said, do you ever use podcasts? And she said, well, no, I never have. And that's a great idea. And it's kind of funny because she's been on a ton of podcasts, but it never occurred to her. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know if America Daps is going to make the cut for her class. I'll maybe have to ask her. But I'm just curious, you in your own classrooms, do you use podcasts? So one, Doug, how cool would it be if we're both in Catherine Hayhoe's class? I think right, that's right. just like a sign of success. You're, you're moving ahead of me. <laughs> you're just, you're moving on up faster than me. I don't know. But yeah, that would be really cool. Um, I, I do use podcasts, but I use them because I teach, I teach creative writing classes. So I don't tend to, I don't teach climate change classes so much as like creative writing classes. And so when I use podcasts, I use them as um, examples for students to listen to and then create their own podcast, um, which I think of as a kind of creative writing. And certainly yeah. it's a kind of creative nonfiction to be sure. And students love that section and they love um, working in audio. So I've had them listen to America Adapts. I've had them listen to oh. something called The Dig, which is run by Jacobin Magazine. I'm trying to think what else. 
a good friend of mine is going to start is starting a podcast. She's a midwife and it's called what's up with your down there, which I'm really excited for. <laughs> nice. um, well, if you ever need a guest lecture on like finding your voice or whatever, I'd be more than happy. If you, if you don't haven't found one already, I, so, I love helping out. I will take you up on that, Doug. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've ventured a few podcasts and it's always kind of fun to see people kind of start. And then when they actually go to the publish, it's really kind of an exciting process. And just as an aside, I, one of the previous guests is Kate Bishop Williams. She's up at the University of Waterloo. She used the podcast in her class and had like 200 students listen to it. But afterwards she reached out to me and we're actually working together on how to use podcasts more formally in the classroom. And mm. so she's leading this little team of like guidelines and things that she wants to share with open access. And of course I, I'm, I'm thrilled because it's obviously good exposure for the podcast, but she just wants it to, you know, I don't think enough university types realize that there's all this audio material out there that's actually quite useful. So. And that people learn through them. You know, it's like yeah. if you're commuting, I mean, you know, all of this, but I, can't tell you how many conversations I have with friends that tell me about something they learned from a podcast. So I think they can be like really effective education tools as well. Okay. I've taken up enough of your time and it's always awesome to talk with you. And I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you last time. And I think you're hopefully going to give me a different answer. If you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? And I hope your journey over the last six, seven months, you know, you've got a whole suite of people mm. that you, you can think of. Well, you know, probably who I would recommend is a guy named Joe Tyrone. I hope that's not who I recommended last time. Probably isn't yeah. great. He was the head of the Oakwood Beach buyout movement. And um, he's the guy that I got to see, one of the three people I got to see when I went back to Staten Island on the book tour and he recently shared with me something that he made called a recipe for a buyout. And uh, he talks about the different ingredients you need and then how you like cook them together in order to have a successful grassroots community led buyout campaign. And I think his first thing is like, take the politicians and set them aside. So it's, he combines humor with also very useful sort of on the ground information around why he felt the buyout worked where he was um, and what he did as a kind of community leader to help that community achieve the results that they wanted. And I think he'd be a great guest. And, and you could make introductions. For sure. He, and he would okay. love to be on the podcast. Cool. Yeah. Excellent idea. All right. So let me just uh, wrap this up. If just I want to throw out there, if the book really just explodes and the option of a movie or TV, I want to be invited to something, you know, like a premiere. All right. Keep me in mind. I will. And also um, we have to figure out who's going to play you in the movie. <laughs> but I'm not in the book, right? No, I, but I you could be in that. like the book promotion part of the movie. You know, I, I, I prefer to say someone, you know, more dashing like Brad Pitt, but I, I'm told I'm a ringer for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I don't Great. know if you know who that actor yes, is. Yes, Totally. It's like 15 people. So maybe get him if he's available, but uh, I, I like your thinking. So <laughs> who plays you? Let's get, let's see your vanity here. Who plays you? Oh gosh. I don't know. Uh, I've been told that I look a little bit like Michelle Williams. Oh yeah. Okay. But not, she always has her hair short, yeah. but I could see with her hair longer. Yeah. Maybe her, or I'm trying to think my husband always compares me to like different 
lovely, dashing uh, movie actresses from the 50s, but I can't remember any of their names right now. So, Lauren Bacall. <laughs> I am not going to even attempt to because I could just get in trouble. I'm just going to just <laughs> yeah, <fair laughs> I'll let you pick it. Just so I'm going to stay neutral. The white male, just shut your mouth. Um, <laughs> No, that would be a lot of fun, and you never know. They uh, just they make movies out of and shows out of podcasts. But uh, your your book is getting a lot of great attention. And again, um, any last bit of plug for the book um, you want to share? And of course, I'll include links to Amazon and all that. But any last plug you want to share with my listeners? Uh, yeah, I would just say that it's a book that, despite it being a sort of like elegy for our wetlands communities, also in my mind contains like lots of kernels of hope in that it shows, you know, what we can do when we come together to face some of these really, really seemingly overwhelming problems. And so part elegy, but part vision of a future that climate change both changes the way we live with the planet, live with each other in the planet, but not only for the worse. Awesome. Excellent summary. Elizabeth, it's Always a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we get to talk again. And I think one of the perks of being a podcaster, I befriend a lot of the guests that come on, and I feel like you and I connect offline quite a bit, and that's a real treat for me. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Doug. It's my pleasure. Hi, Adapters. As I mentioned earlier, this next short conversation, I discussed using podcasts in the classroom with lecturer Kate Bishop-Williams. If you're looking for new, engaging resources, you'll want to listen. Hey, Adapters. I am here with Kate Bishop-Williams, sessional lecturer at the University of Waterloo and a PhD candidate at the University of Guelph, both located in southern Ontario. You guys might recognize that name. Kate's been on podcast before, episode 66, Dead Podcast Society. Hey, Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Doug, great to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We're going to make this quick. I had you on and we're hyping this work that you've been leading and we've been collaborating on, but I want people to know about this really cool project that you're working on, Podcasts in the Classroom. What is the Podcast in the Classroom project? We have taken a, a chance on some new materials and we've released some open educational resources that include three discussion guides and an assignment outline that match up with some episodes of America Adapt to try and make assignments and opportunities for podcasts to be used more broadly in educational settings, uh, particularly in higher education, but we think they could be useful in high school classrooms as well. Why are you doing this besides the obvious reason? So that's a great question. I think we covered a lot of ground in our last conversation, but I think it's important to remind people that podcasts are this great wealth of information freely available all over the world, and they're really interesting sources of information for students. But generally, it's hard for educators to actually know how to use podcasts in their classroom. So what we sort of found when we started talking to people about my use of podcasts in the classroom at Waterloo was that educators thought this was a really great idea. They could tell that the students were interested in the idea, but they had no idea how to do it in their own classrooms. So instead, what we started to figure out was that we could provide guidance uh, in the form of discussion guides and assignment outlines that would allow us to help educators uh bring those podcasts right into their classrooms for their own settings. So what we've done is we've sort of pulled together a series of questions that we're calling discussion guides that allow educators to send their students out to listen to podcasts and then ask them to start thinking about these questions, either 
in discussions in classrooms or writing reflections ahead of time that allow these students to really deeply reflect on the content that's available to them in these different podcasts. Okay, and I want to really recommend to my listeners that check out episode 66, where I have this longer conversation with Kate on how she did this in her classroom. And so if you have no experiences using podcasts in the classroom, I think that's a really great entryway. And this, what we're doing here is sort of that next phase of that. That's great. We And I just want to kind of give an update of what's going on. We, even though when people listen to this at different times, we had the official launch of podcasts in the classroom on November 3rd. Third. What did we do with that? So what that meant was that we actually released all of the three exemplars or the uh, example discussion guides that we're providing, as well as one assignment outline for specific episodes of America Adapts. All of the materials are from what we're calling an open educational resources uh, platform, which means that they're licensed for reuse uh, for anyone out there who wants to take them, modify them, use them in their own settings. They can take those and use them anywhere they want. Um, and that launch was not only a opportunity to share all of these materials, but it was the beginning of our uh, search for feedback on those materials. And what we're looking for from that feedback is really opportunities to identify what can be done to make these examples even better. And we'll go back and we'll revise those materials that we've already provided. And then what we'll do is we'll use all of that information to start developing discussion guides that go along with future episodes um, in a way that's really useful to educators. And that's part of why we're seeking that feedback is to make sure that they're really working for the people who we're designing them for. So the my website has the the official I guess, information. There's a survey that you want people to fill out. Could you quickly sort of summarize what are you trying to accomplish with that survey? And I guess this is the appeal to people out there to fill out that survey. Right. So there's actually a number of ways that we're seeking feedback, and it doesn't necessarily need to be by the survey. The options for uh, sending out feedback uh, to the team are by email, and those email addresses are America Adapts website. And hopefully Doug can put them in the show notes for this as well so that they're easy to find. There's also the opportunity to tweet at us. Um, I'm at KBishopWilliams, uh, and you can tweet at us with hashtag podcast in the classroom. And we'll take all the feedback we get there if you're just looking to give a couple words here and there about what you like or what you want to see added to them. But if you want to give more feedback, details, and lots of information, then there's a link in the America Adapts website that talks all about the podcast in the classroom uh, project. And you can fill in that survey to, to share with us your thoughts about what's working really well, what could maybe be done differently, as well as ideas about what could be done in the future. So if there's specific episodes you want to see a discussion guide developed for, we're going to primarily start working forward with new episodes as they come out. But if there's ones in, that were done previously that you're looking for discussion guides to help get you started with, we'd be more than happy to receive that feedback as well. So all of those different ways are just, just things that we're doing to collect information that would make these the most useful and approachable ways to, to use podcasts in educational settings. So we've had the luxury of a few days after the official launch of this. Any interesting feedback? I know I've looked at a couple of emails, but any uh, people out there that you, you've surprised or sort of the type of person that is interested in this information? Yeah, it's been uh, really exciting. So like you said, it's just been a couple of days since we launched last week. The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive and excited, and people are sharing anecdotes about ways that they've used podcasts in their own classrooms, which is really exciting. And um, I think something that in the future we'll hopefully try and compile some of those resources that other people are sharing with us, that we'll share those more broadly as well. But uh, I've received emails from across Canada and across the United States about people who are excited about these materials and can't wait to try them out in their own settings. So I think that's really great. Great. And I guess one of my own last commentary is that 
this isn't necessarily, you know, this isn't students in the classroom per se. Think about just professional training. And this could be at all levels that people are using on podcasts. And I I certainly want to hammer that point home. A lot of my listeners are adaptation professionals out there and they do ongoing professional training. And why not use a podcast in those settings? That's a really great point to drive home that the point of a podcast is that these materials don't come along with textbook fees and those sorts of things. And so we could use them in all kinds of settings, professional development, workshops, inside and far outside of the higher education spaces. So I think it's really important to hear feedback from those types of people as well. What could we do to make these even more approachable in those settings and even more applicable to those settings? Really, I think anyone who listens to America Adapt has feedback that we could benefit from if they go and check out the discussion guides and tell us what they think, or if they have ideas about other places that they could be used that we can maybe modify them slightly to make them more useful in different places. Okay, so any final thoughts? Really final thoughts are... That we're really excited about this and we really want to be able to make these useful for people. And that's the whole point. So the more feedback we can collect, again, Twitter, email, that survey link, anywhere that people can share their feedback with us is going to make these better resources for more people down the road. And so we'd love to hear what people have to think about them. Okay, folks out there. So check out the show notes. There's links to this. And then within the, the page itself, there's a bunch of links. This is a great opportunity. I'm very excited. I'm very grateful for Kate's participation in leading this. She's been doing an amazing job. We have more information on the, we have a small team that that's worked on this on the website. You can get access to the work and they're doing similar work. But again, think of yourself, if you're an educator and I guess expand your mind on what are the resources out there. And I think hopefully this will be a useful resource to you in, in that respect. And I'm very excited. I obviously benefit, but again, thank you, Kate. And thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. And again, just want to drive home that it was just uh, you and I as part of a team. And so quick shout out to Sarah Hansen, uh, Ali vs. Lewis, Kurt Newton, and Randy Van Hoos, who have all had really important roles in helping us develop this. Yes. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks, Kate. Thanks. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Elizabeth Rush. It's always a pleasure chatting with her. Congrats, Elizabeth, on the NSF grant and good luck in Antarctica. Check out links to her book in the show notes. I hear from my guests sometimes that after they've come on the podcast, my listeners have reached out to them to talk about adaptation or even to then invite them to participate in some sort of collaboration. I love that these connections are happening. Don't think that these people are unapproachable. They are, and they'd make great speakers at all the different events that you guys get involved in. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on that wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. Seriously, it is the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to awesome, awesome things. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.